The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, Genesis 16, where we're continuing in our series, Turning Points, Meeting God in an Hour of Crisis, turning back a little bit from where we've been the last few weeks earlier in the book of Genesis to the account of Hagar and what happens with Abraham and Sarah and her. Here, as I read God's word, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May God add, his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Phyllis Wheatley is famous as the first black woman in America to have her writings published. As a seven-year-old, she was the only female slave on a slave ship that brought 96 slaves to Boston from Western Africa in 1761. 
She survived this horrendous ordeal, while 21 of the 96 slaves did not. She was purchased by a Boston family as a domestic servant and became like a daughter to them, and at a young age, she began writing. In 1770, she wrote an elegy on the great evangelist George Whitfield when he died in Massachusetts, and that poem made her famous. But one of the most remarkable characteristics of this woman's life was her strong Christian faith. Even as she looked back on the sufferings that she had endured, she boldly affirmed her belief in the providence of God for her good. Really an amazing story. Phyllis Wheatley reminds me of another slave, Hagar, the servant girl of Sarai. We come to Genesis 16 and see Hagar at a time of crisis. This woman, who was also an Egyptian, a foreigner, and a slave, would have been little regarded in the culture of that day. She would have been insignificant. But Hagar was not forgotten by God. In fact, in this chapter, we see God's intervention in Hagar's life and his mercy to Hagar as he reveals himself to her as the God who sees, the God who knows her. Let's consider this morning our text under three headings. First is the trouble brought on by sin, and then the merciful intervention of the God who sees, and then we will draw some points of application as our final point. First then, the trouble brought on by sin. We see this in verses 1 through 6. In Genesis 16, we really come down from the mountaintop, if you were reading through the book of Genesis, of chapter 15, where the Lord reaffirms his covenant with Abraham, and now we're in the midst of what we might say is a broken family. We would say this is dysfunctional, this is wrong. We see manipulation, we see jealousies, we see all kinds of things. And really, we see trouble brought on by our own sin. The great trial that begins this chapter is Sarah's barrenness. She's feeling this very acutely. Infertility or barrenness is a great burden, even in our society still. That's a very hard thing for parents to bear. But in that day and age, it was even worse because it was so preeminent in terms of a woman's life and responsibilities. But so Sarah... For 10 years, they, she and Abraham have been in the promised land looking for the fulfillment of what God had promised to them and still no son. And so Sarah comes up with a plan. Maybe they were wondering about the fact that maybe God had promised these things to Abraham, but he hadn't mentioned anything specifically up to this point about Sarah. Maybe Uh, There's a way that Abraham can have an heir without Sarah. And so Sarah voices this idea to Abraham, and uh, it was a very culturally acceptable idea. It was a custom of that time. It wasn't anything unusual. In fact, it's interesting uh, to remember that four of the 12 sons of Israel were born according to the same custom of a servant girl to the mistress being given as a wife as well. However good an idea might be, though, or however 
culturally acceptable it might be at a given time that does not make it right. This was wrong. It was wrong fundamentally because it was against the nature of marriage itself as instituted by God. Very familiar in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage as instituted by God is monogamous between a husband and a wife. Certainly, that speaks to cultural issues that may be acceptable in our day as well. But God's word doesn't change. So it was wrong because of the nature of marriage itself. But also, we really see here in Genesis 16 that it is also a fruit of unbelief in Abraham and Sarah's lives. It was a surrender to unbelief as evidenced by a refusal to wait patiently on the Lord for the accomplishment of what he had promised in his time. But we can certainly all identify with Sarah and Abraham, can't we, of wanting to kind of help God along in accomplishing what we hope that he will do and what we think he's promised to us. It's interesting in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul uses this very incident as an illustration of trying to, by self-effort, accomplish what God alone has accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. In other words, Paul uses this as an illustration of works righteousness, trying to be justified by what we do and not what Christ has done. But the application certainly comes powerfully to all of us in terms of our frequent refusal to wait on the Lord and pray in terms of seeking him for what he's doing in our lives. Matthew Henry, that great Puritan commentator, puts the application in these words. I think it's very well stated by him. He says, If our wishes be not kept in a submission to God's providence, our pursuits will scarcely be kept under the restraints of his precepts. Are you hearing what he said? If our wishes, if our, if our desires, and we've got lots of desires for what we would like in this life, many of them not wrong, but if our desires not be kept submitted to the providence of God, then Matthew Henry is saying our pursuits, what we do, will scarcely be kept under the restraints of his precepts, his will, his commandments, what he's revealed the way we ought to live. In other words, when we begin to chafe at how God is controlling our circumstances, we are only a step away from breaking his precepts to fulfill our own desires. And so, troubles unfold. Hagar apparently looks at Sarai with contempt in some way. Sarah is angry. She goes to Abraham and talks to him, and he abdicates, and he leadership in the whole thing and says, well, Sarah, do what you think is best. A broken family, trouble at home. And Hagar is clearly the least to blame in all of this. But what does she do? She flees. She runs away. And we find her in the wilderness. And uh, apparently, she might be even trying to get back to Egypt, where she's from, pregnant, homeless, friendless, exhausted, certainly angry to some extent, forlorn, and desolate. But that's where we come to our next point, and that is the merciful intervention of the God who sees. In verses 7 and following, we see God intervene. 
And we see that Sarah is not forgotten by God, but he sees her and knows her and cares for her. And we read that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. And this angel of the Lord, we've already seen him in this Old Testament study that it's very likely that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's not just any angel of the Lord, it's the preeminent messenger of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord finds her and he speaks to her and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And then the angel does two things. He reminds her of her duty and he gives her a promise. Let's look at each of those. Look at the duty first in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to the trouble. Return to where you really belong. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't it very common for us to want to escape from the problems of this life? I think that's one of the reasons that the lottery is is such a a draw for people to play. It's not just the money, but it's the idea that I'm going to win so much money that I'm going to be able to reinvent a whole new life for myself. You know, I'm going to be able to escape all the normal, ordinary problems of life. Or that's why someone might think about moving across country just to get away from all the problems that are part of their lives here. It's that same motivation. No wonder. It's, it's kind of like the words of David in Psalm 55 when he says, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, then I would fly away and be at rest. You ever just wanted to just fly away from the problems of this life? But we know that the biblical viewpoint is that we are called to face our circumstances and our problems in the power of God with the strength that he gives. And troubles are to be seen as an opportunity for us to prove God's grace and power in our daily experience. So we have the example of someone like the Apostle Paul, who when he speaks about the thorn in his flesh, we don't know exactly what that was, and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove it. And the Lord's response is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's his message to us as well. Most of the time, God's normal way of escape is through something difficult. In fact, when we hear that familiar verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. And then the last phrase is that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape is that God doesn't just take us out of these things most of the time. The way of escape is persevering, trusting in him, obeying him, seeking him, that you may be able to endure it. That is the way through the trial. And so Hagar is called to return to her place. But secondly, the angel of the Lord gives this gracious promise to Hagar in verse Verses 10 and 11, listen to what the angel said. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Then verse 12 describes further what Ishmael's life will be like. 
And so what is the angel promising her? Here's Hagar thinking, this is the end. I fled, my life is ruined, things are a disaster, and here I'm going to die. Most likely she thought that. What will happen to the baby that I'm bearing? And she's, she's told that she will not perish. In fact, her unborn baby will be born, and he will not perish. He will be a son who will grow to be a man. He will be named Ishmael, meaning God hears. And there's this assurance that the Lord has listened to her. In fact, there's this promise of numerous, a multitude of descendants from her line. And that Ishmael, even though Hagar was a slave, Ishmael will not be. Everyone's hand will be against him. He will be a wild donkey of a man, yes, but he will not be a slave. What a gracious promise of God to her that meets her in her hour of crisis and need. And then in verse 13, we see Hagar's response. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. In my opinion, this is a conversion experience. Hagar comes to know the true God, the God who sees her and cares for her and hears her. She believed the promise of God. God has said he's heard her misery interesting the text doesn't record that Hagar prayed or that she even cried out God heard her affliction he heard her misery he heard the groans of her heart and we don't even know that she was particularly seeking God but God finds her the angel of the Lord finds her here she was fleeing up to this point she had known about the God of Abraham We can imagine when Abraham stopped and his various times throughout his journeys that he would set up an altar and worship the true God and we we would know that his household would worship in a sense with him. And so Hagar had observed these things. It's possible to know a lot about God. It's possible to sing the hymns, to hear the sermon, to come to church and do that for years. To be able to enunciate doctrine even and yet in your heart not know the true God. But here, Hagar has a personal encounter with the true God, the God who sees, and her life is changed. Well, let's look to applications of this then. The first is this. It's a question in this way. Have you come to know the God who sees? Have you come to know this God? You know, there are many ways of fleeing into the wilderness, Now, you might say, well, there's not much wilderness in Lancaster. There's the state game lands north of us. There's a couple parks, a lot of farmland. But fleeing doesn't necessarily involve wilderness geographically. It can be fleeing into pleasure, comfort, ambition maybe with your job or status in the world's eyes. Maybe it's fleeing in the sense of isolating yourself from everyone around you or fleeing into materialism as your escape, or media, and music, and technology, and Facebook, and texting, and these kind of things. There are, there are lots of ways to flee and to hide from God. Hagar did that. It's a temptation for all of us. We all know something of that. But the truth of the gospel is for those who are trying to hide from God in some way. It's an amazing truth that The Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue people fleeing into the wilderness, to rescue people who are hiding and without hope and despairing of life, 
to rescue and deliver and to lift up in new life people who the Bible says are enemies of God because we're alienated from him. What a gospel the Lord Jesus Christ tells us. What an indescribable gift that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. So I hope you will reflect on that. Have you come to know this God personally? But secondly, are you experiencing the present comfort of the God who sees? Are you experiencing that comfort that Hagar knew when God appeared to her? And in the epilogue in verses 15 and 16, we see what happens. It tells us Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when this occurred. Clearly, Hagar went back. We can kind of imagine the scene. Hagar returning, hopefully a lot of humility on all sides, some repentance, some forgiveness among this household. Um, Things have gotten out of hand, but we imagine a degree of reconciliation because they had to live together. Yes, there were still consequences and brokenness because of sin, And this was not the end of the trouble and the hardships for Hagar. In fact, when Ishmael is in his teenage years and the promised son Isaac is born, things will fall apart again and she will be sent away for good. But God will fulfill her promise to her. She will be in the wilderness again. And again, she will have an experience of the provision of God in her need. Certainly, it's characteristic of Christian life and Christian experience that There are many times in our lives that we deeply feel the need of the comfort and encouragement of God. But for those who entrust themselves to God through a living faith in Jesus Christ their Lord, God gives a rich assurance of his presence and his good purpose in all hardship. The Bible emphasizes this over and over again. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about the kind of trials that come into our lives, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't think it's strange or surprising. It's normal Christian life and experience. But he goes on to say, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because we are united to Christ through faith, by his grace, there's this truth that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He identifies with us in our suffering, and one day his glory is going to be revealed. Romans 5 puts it in a little bit different way. It talks about, more than that, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And he says this, he says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why do we not despair? Why doesn't hope put us to shame or let us down? Because he is saying, in sufferings, we ultimately know hope because there is the comfort of the love of Jesus Christ poured into our hearts by the Spirit. No matter how deep the sorrow may be, no matter how hard the trial, the Christian knows the experience of the present comfort of God through the gospel. In 1620, when the pilgrims 
landed in New England and the, the boat was harbored, the ship was harbored offshore, Dorothy Bradford, the wife of William Bradford, who would become famous, fell off the ship and drowned. She didn't fall or wasn't killed in the harsh journey over the many weeks, but in the harbor, she fell over and drowned. This young wife, they had left their three-year-old son with friends in Leyden. And that winter, 52 of the 102 pilgrim settlers had died, as you know in the story. William Bradford, who that year became governor of the colony after the first governor died, was certainly in a time of great crisis in his life. He doesn't record anything about it in terms of his emotional response, but near the end of his life, he penned these words, and I think they reflect his crisis and his experience. Listen to this poem. Faint not, poor soul, in God still trust. Fear not the things thou suffer must. For he who loves, he doth chastise, and then all tears wipes from their eyes. Certainly a declaration of the comfort That our God gives us. But finally, a point of application how is God calling you to persevere in a difficult pathway? How is God calling you to persevere in the pathway that might be difficult in your life right now? I believe that Scripture makes it clear that there are elements of every person's life that are difficult and from which we may may be tempted, maybe often and maybe strongly, to want to just escape, to give up, to flee. And sadly, the real philosophy of the world that you often hear all around you is aimed at encouraging someone to live solely for himself or herself. I've read articles that tell a husband or a wife that if they're tired of their marriage or if they just want to bail out so that they can pursue their own self and finally have peace, then that's fine. Or even if things aren't going that well, Maybe you give up on your marriage just because you want to pursue something entirely of your own. I've read articles like that. That's a totally acceptable thing to write and teach and say in our society. And so we have a whole generation of children abandoned by their families and abandoned by their fathers or families divided because the mom or the dad opted for the lie of a better life. Maybe your difficult pathway involves chronic health issues. Or maybe it's problems with being unemployed or underemployed. Or maybe it's a physical disability. Maybe it's being single when you long to be married. Or maybe it's a couple facing infertility. Or maybe parenting a difficult child. Maybe it's the heartache of losing a spouse or a child or someone dear to you. Or maybe it's a very ordinary, everyday kind of hardship, the kind that we all face regularly. But whatever the path may may be for you right now, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is present with you in that hardship and that he will give you daily grace to bear up, to trust in him, and to take up your cross daily and follow him. He is not surprised by this, and he calls you, to trust in him. This is not the message that the world will give you. It's not a message of easy believism. It's not the health and wealth gospel that you can hear so easily. This is the life-giving, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching good news of our risen and reigning Savior. Praise be to God. Phyllis Wheatley died at age 31. 
a slave for most of her life, but truly not forgotten by God. A life that radiated the knowledge of the God who sees in spite of her many sufferings. May you trust in that same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the God who saw and heard Hagar. Amen. Father, we confess our weak faith. We confess that we long to escape many times, that we want life to be easy, that we often turn away from the pathway of taking up our cross daily and following Jesus Christ. We thank you that you give grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that when we are wandering, when we are hiding, when we are fleeing from you, that you promise to keep us, you promise to provide for us, you promise to lift us up and give us that comfort that surpasses everything that the world promises. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts of faith to believe and embrace the truth of your word, that it would not just be so many words to us, that it would be a reality. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know that experience of your love poured out in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, that you would show them the way, that you would help them to hear with ears that hear the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.